We've been looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. I'm just going to read verse 7 today, uh, just in the interest of time, because the Communion Sunday, uh, we don't get into the teaching time quite as early. But uh, I'm going to read verse 7, but it's in the context of this entire section dealing with a culture contrast in the area of marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's have a word of prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come before you once again thankful you're a God who has spoken. And in your mercy, you've not only said things, but you've ensured that we had access to what you've said. In this time, we pray your Holy Spirit would carry out that illumining work, that we would understand what you've said and why you've said it, that you would plant it within us, and then through your Holy Spirit, enable us as we step out in obedience in both our thinking and in our acting to the things that you've said. Give us alertness of mind, I pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 3 in 1 Peter opened with introducing us to the seventh of the culture contrasts for believers. We've been looking at what it means to be living as aliens in the NIV or pilgrims in the King James Version, sojourners, exiles in the English Standard Version and New American Standard Version. Uh, What does it mean to live that way in the midst of this culture? And we've been introduced to a number of culture contrasts, things that God wants to be true of the believer that stand in stark contrast with what's true of the culture. Places where we are intended by God to be lights in the darkness, stick out in an awkward sort of way to the prevailing patterns. The seventh of these culture contrasts had to do with biblical marriage, that God created marriage, He knows the right way for it to function. And when you follow what God has to say about marriage, you will always contrast with the culture. You will always stand out with the norms of that culture. We spent two sessions looking at verses 1 through 6, which addressed marriage guidelines for the wife. Today, starting in verse 7, we find some guidelines for how the redeemed husband is called by God to behave in the framework of the marriage. And verse 7 actually begins the way verse 1 does in this third chapter, where he says, likewise, or in the NIV, in the same way. What are they talking about? Well, in both cases, they're referring back into the second chapter as we studied it, And it's referring back to the idea of being submissive or subject to authorities. You remember that God has established in the midst of a fallen world three broad societal structures. The civil government structure, which implemented after the flood. God put it in place to try to hold in check as a measure of his grace some of the ravages of sin. We also talked about the work structures in which there have to be authority. There are those who are bosses, those who are not. And then he talks about the home, all three of which work to create an order and structure in the midst of a world that has fallen. He talked about submissiveness in the context of all three of those structures. Believers are called upon to submit to civil authority 
called upon to submit to employers. And of course, in both of those cases, in all ways except where those authorities are seeking to get us to do something contrary to the express teachings of the scriptures. In which case, then, our higher loyalty is to God. He begins the third chapter by saying, likewise, in the same way, wives are to submit to their husband. And now, he says, husbands are also to be subject. But subject to what? Has to be the question I pose in somebody's mind. I mean, he's explained what being subject on the wife's part is all about. What does it mean for the husband to be subject? Well, basically, to be subject to the clear needs of the wife and family as a family develops within the framework of the home. By the way, that's the reason that Ephesians 5, which parallels this to a degree, and introduces us to some other principles that God has for marriage, begins in verse 21 by saying, I want you to be mutually submissive one to the other. It's not that God doesn't have an authority structure in the home, but what he is underscoring for us is that God is interested that both a husband and a wife enter into a relationship, understanding nobody is given a position of privilege. All are called upon to put the needs of another above their own. In the case of a wife, she is going to be submissive to and supportive of the leadership the husband shows. The husband has no right to be the the master of the home in the sense of the king, bring me my slippers, He is called upon in the example, as Ephesians 5 puts it, of the headship of the Lord Jesus, to be a servant. He is called upon to guide that home, be where the buck stops, but not so that things can be done that he wants done, so that things can be done that God wants done. And that is all woven into understanding God's purpose and plan in the home. It's a selfless position. In God's plan, neither the husband nor the wife has a position where they're permitted to live for themselves, selfishly. Both are commanded by God to approach their marriage submissively, putting the needs of another above their own. It's just they end up showing it somewhat differently. And let's examine what he now tells us about the husband, who shows submission, likewise, shows submission in terms of servant leadership. And he identifies in verse 7 five distinctive pieces of what that servant leadership is going to look like. He begins by saying, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's the way the ESV translates it. The husband is called upon to live with his wife in an understanding way. Understanding way translates a form of the Greek word gnosis, which refers to, it can refer to experiential knowledge, knowledge that you gain over time in experience, or it can refer to knowledge you gain out of relationship. Relational and experiential knowledge is what gnosis is all about. That's in contrast to the Greek word adon or oida, which refers to knowledge in terms of factual knowledge observable, factual pieces of information. Both types of knowledge are important. But there's a reason God chose this form of it here, the Greek word gnosis. The husband is commanded to live with his wife in a way that demonstrates they are exercising gnosis, that they are exercising this type of understanding and knowledge. He is commanded to live with his wife according to knowledge, to live with her according to what he comes to understand and know about her needs, 
and who she is as a person. Only understanding that enables a husband to be considerate. And by the way, the NIV translates that verse, husbands, be considerate with your wife. Then they're picking up on this aspect of gnosis, which says you're learning this knowledge for a purpose. The purpose is to deal wisely in an understanding method, because that's what considerate means. King James translates it, dwell according to knowledge. All of it coming back to this idea that you need to know something. You need to be a student of your wife. A husband is to act toward his wife. Again, we're talking God's plan. He is to act toward his wife on the basis of getting to know her in relationship. Remember, relational knowledge, experiential knowledge. To know her in relationship so that he can truly be considerate. You know, it matters little if a husband comes before God and says, well, I intended to be considerate. Because God's going to respond and say, you fool. What you did wasn't considered at all. I don't care what your motive was. I've explained to you how it's not just a motive but an action. You've got to get to know her. Oh, well, that's pretty tough. I, I don't have time for that. And God says, let's go out to the woodshed. We've got, we got some work that needs done. Uh, you've got to get to know them to be considerate and act on their need. Our culture around us encourages men to be inconsiderate. It encourages them to be just the opposite. They're encouraged to live primarily for themselves. And, in fact, the rever- uh, parallel to that is women are often uh, encouraged to be just primarily there to serve. That's what you're about. You know, you serve your husband. And God says, no, we're talking culture contrast now. I'm wanting light and darkness. I want marriages that reflect the biblical pattern. And I use that word, not Christian, because a lot of Christians don't reflect biblical patterns in a lot of things. But biblical patterns. He says, listen, the biblical patterns are going to be like a light in the darkness here. People are going to scratch their heads and say, what's going on there? I want you to provide an entirely different model. Because you can't live with your wife if you are not this way. That's the terminology used here. This word lived with, live with, translates a form of the Greek word koinonia. The Greek word koinonia translates by the word partnership, fellowship, other such issues in the New Testament in English. And it literally means a joint participation in the necessities of life. And God says, listen, you can't really face life together with your wife in a true koinonia sense if you don't have the understanding that's being talked about here. If you don't have this relational experiential knowledge so that you can observe and really understand what's going on in your wife, you can't really be living with. Why? Because God's intention in marriage is companionship. First and foremost, Adam and Eve didn't have children in the garden. That was part of God's great plan, of course, to be fruitful and multiply. But they didn't have children in the garden there, they had companionship. The theologians talk about it as, the, as the, uh, the concept of the covenant of companionship. Trying to get that driven home to people, that marriage is a covenant of companionship. That's why God created initially. He says, not good that you're alone. That's what it's about. And he says, you can't live with koinonia. You can't have koinonia in partnership with a woman, men, if you don't have this knowledge. 
it requires that you respond to your wife with understanding and consideration. That's what living together is all about. God defines it that way. Now, what's the point? The point is this. Husbands, you are committing sin every time you do not live with understanding consideration of your wife. It is sin. It's not just unfortunate. It's not just that, well, I think my marriage could be better if I did that. It is sin before God. He has said, the marriage is a covenant of companionship. That's what you committed yourself to before me. I've defined that this is what it's about. It is a grievous, sinful distortion of God's plan for marriage when men are not the friends of their wives. A sinful, grievous distortion. It totally misrepresents marriage in the minds of the fallen unbeliever. It is a sinful, grievous distortion of God's purpose for marriage. Whenever men are inconsiderate of their wives, and you will always be inconsiderate of your wife if you don't know her. Now, I know there's all kinds of jokes about, well, how do you get to know a woman? You know, that's just, yeah, you don't have to understand every piece of it, but you better be growing in some knowledge here. You know, you can't just, like, wash your hands and say, well, she's a woman. I don't know what's going on. No, no, no. God says, yes, you can. Uh, he looks at me and he says, listen, you've had, to t- you've had to be a graduate professor teaching advanced education theory and research strategies and analysis. What do you mean you can't observe your wife? What's going on here? You know, uh, and it's the same no matter where we are. You need to know and act on the basis of that. Biblically, it is a sinful distortion of God's intention in marriage. And by the way, Theologically and biblically, not that those words are conflicting with each other, but theologically and biblically, it is as much a breaking of the marriage covenant as desertion and immorality is. People say, well, I only sinned this much. It's still covenant breaking. Remember we talked about sin and what separates us from God in the first place? Uh, You know, I said, well, I didn't do all the sin they did. Yeah, but you sinned. You're still a sinner. You say, well, I didn't sin against my wife in my marriage as much as they did. Well, you still sinned against them. How do you come before God and say, well, I don't think it was as serious a sin. Can you imagine standing before God and saying something like that? Say, well, I know I did that, but I didn't do this. You think that's going to cut it when you stand before God? No, brothers and sisters, no. It is as sinful a distortion of marriage and God's intentions in marriage for a husband to refuse to live with understanding and consideration in the marriage as it is for a husband to commit adultery in the marriage. They are both covenant-breaking. Which is, by the way, the reason most of the Protestant theologians at the time of the Reformation ended up saying, listen, there are various ways the marriage covenant can be broken. Immorality is one of them. But desertion is another one. And refusing to live in companionship also is one. And there was kind of a universal commitment to that reality about marriage. I think we lost a lot of that. 
Does that mean God's not interested that you be moral? Of course he's interested you be moral. But there's more to marriage than morality. Companionship was why it was created. I've known people who prided themselves on being married 50, 60 plus years who never were friends with each other. They just happened to live at the same place and thought they had something commendable before God because they did that. What a distortion. God's saying, wake up, wake up. It's not that I didn't, it's not that I'm, I'm displeased that you were not immoral, but there's more to it than this. You've missed the point. And not only have you missed it in terms of all of the unsaved that are observing your life, you've missed it for your children. And you've, ex- you've distorted an understanding of what my intention for marriage is for your grandchildren and maybe even your great-grandchildren. You are guilty of serious obstruction to the purposes of God in the midst of a fallen world. And guys, I'd say that ought to be shoulder-bowing, don't you? <laughs> uh, listen. Who could stand before God on those bases? And before the Lord said, Lord, give me an insight into my life. Not an uncommon week for me to come before the Lord and say, you know, I've not been as considerate as I needed to be, Lord. Uh, how about you? How about you? And God says, listen, that's the first part here that I'm building on. I want you to live with your wife in an understanding sort of way. Wow, does he turn on to the good stuff now? No, no, not really. He, he then moves on and he says, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. The husband is called, secondly here, to show honor to his wife. He wants that just dripping from the nature of the relationship, oozing out of it. Showing honor. The Greek word is tomeo. It means that someone recognizes the value and dignity of another. Back in the second chapter, we encountered that word when it said in verse 17, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love, fear God. Honor the emperor. Love everyone. Tomorrow, God wants this showing honor to be a clear ingredient in the Christian witness. He intends us to see others as worthy of esteem and respect. It's meant to be a central piece of his model for marriage for the man. Now, to honor, you cannot carry out tamao in the Greek. You cannot honor it unless you actually observe and see the person that is to be the focus of it. Do, think of it this way. My actions and my attitudes with my wife and before others as I'm dealing with my wife say everything to other people and to my wife about whether I value her. It's more than rhetoric, you see. It's how I deal with her. Am I demonstrating? Do my words and my actions dignify her role and her place in God's plan for my life? Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Do your actions, do your attitudes, do your words indicate before other people, I found a good thing. I found a good thing. I obtained favor from God because God allowed this woman to be in my life. 
This is God's. Are you showing honor? Are you showing honor? Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12 says, An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels are. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. How do you see the wife? More precious than jewels? I know lots of men that see a lot of things more precious than their wife. God says, I don't want anything more precious except the Lord Jesus himself than that wife. If I put you in this relationship, I want, I want you to honor her. There's all kinds of ways to dishonor and disrespect. I see guys a lot making fun of their wives, putting the wives down in front of other people. A large part of comedy, even in our culture, is built around, you know, sort of a healthy, mature way. We, we ridicule and make fun of the spouse and all of that sort of thing. Brothers and sisters, that's not what God's saying here. <laughs> He's saying, I want the exact the opposite thing. It's not right for a redeemed husband to deal that way. And brothers and sisters, and sisters, I'm letting you in on something. There have been times when I've taken a man aside in our own church over the years as I've ministered, and I've said, you just sinned against your wife back in that conversation. You have no right to hold her up to ridicule, no right to have fun at her expense. It dishonored her, and not just is that not good for your marriage, it is sin before God. Let's confess it before God. Because if you know Christ, you can find forgiveness for that. But brother, there's going to be some harm done by it. And you need God's grace to get that healed. And I'll tell you, brothers, if I see it happen with any of you, you're going to have a go-to-the-woodshed time with Pastor Gary. He's going to talk to you. Say, wait. I don't have any time for that. I don't have any use for that. I don't want any picture of it. It's wrong, it's sin for you to do that, and I have precious kids in this church, I don't want them seeing it. I don't want them seeing it. I want them seeing you. I found a good thing. Precious thing. Does me good. God's plan. That's the message. These kids that turn to Christ and try to grow. We have a commitment before God to, to show them the Christian life lived out. Let's live it that way. Oh, they're going to see all kinds of other examples. I know that. But shouldn't they see the right example? And brothers and sisters, the right example isn't just that somebody sticks it out over time in a marriage. Oh, no. The right example is being in the marriage the way God called for us to be. That's what God says. I'm looking at the time, and I'm looking at this passage... And feeling somewhat apologetic, uh, you know, I, I kind of like to get through one verse, you know, when we work our way through these things. But that's not going to work today. Besides, I'm so convicted, I don't think I can go any further uh, <laughs> in this deal. Uh, but do you see what God has to say here? He has a model for marriage. He created it. We've seen a lot about the woman over two weeks. Looks like we're going to see a lot about the man over two weeks, too. But uh, God has a model. 
part of our witness in a fallen world is living out that model. And it gives opportunity to share Christ. I've had opportunities to share Christ simply because within the spheres of our relationships, even the spheres of my kids' relationship, they saw something different in the midst of marriage. And they desperately want something different than what they see. And sadly, many times have experienced in their growing up and in their homes. You don't think this creates opportunities for the witness of the gospel? Oh, brothers and sisters, it does. It does. Show honor. Live with knowledge, consideration. You say, well, how often do I have to have myself reminded about this? Too often. Too often. Too often. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're a God who's really there, that you've spoken, you breathed out your word, you, you designed marriage, you have a plan for it. But boy, the world has missed it. Be at work in us as men and women who know you, who are redeemed that we might understand ever more completely how you want us to live counterculturally, enabled by your Spirit, so that we can have a light in this culture. Not just by the things that we demonstrate that we're against, although there's a place for that, but because we live out what we're for. And let that light brighten up some dark places in the lives of the people that you've brought into the spheres of our lives. We give you praise as you do that. We thank you for this time that we have together this day. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.